Welcome to the Story Shop Podcast. I'm your host, Gregor Holleran. Today we speak to Danny Campbell. He's the founder of Hoko, our architecture practice, which is scaling to be one of the biggest in the world. They're currently crowdfunding. He tells us a lot about that journey and why he chose to crowdfund and the challenges and opportunities from disrupting an industry. Um, this is a passion project of mine as Danny is one of my best friends so it's good to get him on the Story Shop podcast and actually have a chance to catch up with him. I hope you enjoy, we'd love to hear your feedback and your questions and recommendations for future episodes. We are at We Are Story Shop on social. Hi Danny. Hello Gregor. So Danny, tell us about Hoko. So Hoko is my life's work to date. It's a, a residential architecture company. Um, in a nutshell, our mission is to bring architecture to everyday people and make that experience from start to finish as perfect as possible. Sounds like a simple thing. I think most people imagine at some point in their life doing work in their home, but until you get to the point in your life when you go through that process, you'll realise that the, the whole industry of construction uh, has turned their back on you. You know, It's seen as more trouble than it's worth. And uh, we're flipping that on its head. And uh, we, we've grown very quickly off the back of um, changing the stereotype of that of that demographic. So tell me about starting it. So I officially started Hoko in uh, 2016 um, as a sole trader. I'd just come back from Vancouver where I escaped to after completing my master's. Um, the, the, the architecture education process is notoriously long. Um, it's incredibly flawed as well and it really kind of can grind you down. So I think most people by the end of their um, second degree going back into industry as a, an assistant is what you're called, um, are looking for a bit of escapism. And I did that by going off to Vancouver. Um, I came back with the plan of making some quick cash and, and going back to having fun. And um, I started that the only way I kind of knew how, which was um, in, in small scale, um, very small scale entrepreneurship. And um, shortly after starting Hoko and doing a bit of bit of this and a bit of that, um, my long-term girlfriend at the time, Mel, um, came up from studying her PhD for Valentine's Day. And um, we found out the next month that she was pregnant. So that's kind of where it really started for me. And um, the first two and a half years were, was that typical learning curve of um, getting payment, you know, what do you actually do? Pitching yourself, a variety of different things. And then on the um, the birth of my second boy, Dougie, that's when the business model actually launched. So it's kind of like two, two and a half years of finding my feet. And then since then, it's been two and a half years of very rapid growth. So what was the change? What made that click for the growth to start happening? I think defining what our business was actually going to be for. Um, so I think when most people start a business, they're doing something that they enjoy. Um I think my biggest advice would be doing something that you would do for free. And for me, that was creative stuff, doing doing design. And I tried lots of different things. You know, I tried I tried graphic design. I, I, I had quite a successful run of uh, artwork. Um, but it was really small-scale architectural projects where I found that my naivety and blind optimism was giving me a massive edge on the competition. And um, it was spotting that opportunity and how that was better than what my far more experienced, far better qualified competitors were doing that um, really kind of unleashed the potential of um, 
taking a demographic that everybody else sees as a nightmare and making it aspirational. And um, and then I basically worked back from um, putting myself in the shoes of that client and building um, a business model around them, um, which has never been done in architecture. You know, generally um, the focus is always on big projects. So two and a half years was that when you first got your first employee? Then. Yeah, so yeah, a- April 2019 is when um, Simon joined us. So how did that change things, change the company from you doing all the work to then stepping into a slightly different role? Yeah, that was a, a really big punt. When I, when I think back to it now, um, it, it fills me with like more anxiety thinking back about it than it does um, when it was actually happening. So... The day Simon actually joined, the lead up to that, you know, I'd been doing quite well. I had quite a lot of projects um, and I was I was honest enough with myself that I knew where my weaknesses were um, and they were very much in the technical aspects of architecture, you know, how buildings are actually put together. And um, I got some advice. I think it was like a Richard Branson quote or something as cliche as that, which was that every business should have, you know, three parts. It should have an entrepreneur. It should have a technician and a manager. Um, and I knew for a fact I definitely wasn't the, the technician person. So that was the gap that I tried to fill. And uh, my mindset was I would give it a go and it probably wouldn't work. Um, but it would at least free me up to, you know, have a crack at doing the bit that I was best at. Um, and uh, the day Simon, Simon's first day was the day that my uh, son Dougie was born. So I was there at 2.30 in the morning watching this, you know, baby coming into the world, which is um, pretty traumatic, and then went to, like, the second most traumatic thing, which is, like, welcoming your new employee, uh, you know, into the world of Hoko um, and not even having a computer ready for him, you know. It was um, often kind of an unusual thing. Often think about that quite a lot because, obviously, I think we had similar experiences where... We're both kind of probably a little, it's a little scary hiring your first member of staff. And I think if you hire someone good, then it just fuels you with confidence. You realise what you're capable of. You realise how they can fill for your weaknesses and how they can just make the company so much better. But often think about, you know, if you hire the wrong person first, then how do you kind of, it must be really hard to then, when it's scary, just as a concept, and then you start thinking about, I've actually just hired someone who's completely wrong, which is possible. Mm. I think it's very possible to hire someone that's mm-hmm. completely wrong. And if that's the first hire, how do you kind of get back from that? Yeah, it can, it can absolutely make or break what you're trying to achieve. And um, when it's your your first employee, you need to put so much trust in them. And I, I remember um, when I met Simon, he'd, just, uh, he, he'd been involved in a, a very large architecture firm in Glasgow that um, went bankrupt and went to liquidation and he was jobless. And he had his pick of about eight jobs. And my interview with him was more him interviewing me. And um, it became this thing where actually I was pitching for, you know, his commitment. You know, he's come in, he came in very much as a co-founder. You know, he's far more experienced than me, slightly older than me. He definitely brings the level of maturity in the office up. And um, I think that finding that person who was almost a bit of a leader for me in the early days as well of doing things right um, was was a massive thing. And I think especially bring on your first person, you need to leave your ego at the door and get the absolute best person you possibly can. And um, sometimes if you if you kind of have this kind of a, maybe a bit more insecure, you'll try and take on somebody you can dominate a bit more and actually that's the worst thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've now obviously, like look at where you are now, where it's probably worth just, if you want to kind of give a wee description of where Hoko is now and, and the current state of the company from two and a half years to, to now. 
yeah, so our, our first year was really good, you know, pretty much just between me and Simon and, and, and two other part-time staff. Um, we built up a really strong client base and we kind of justified that we'd kind of cracked the architectural piece or certainly the, the beginnings of it. Um, we then raised some investment and we scaled geographically during lockdown, uh, remotely employing architects. Uh, there was no freelancers or anything like that. Um, we defined our purpose, which is the perfect client experience. And um, we've continued to scale. So we're now at 35 staff. Um, you know, our, our turnovers increased tenfold. And uh, we're now doing a crowdfunding campaign to scale again. And um, the scale at which we're growing, it freaks people out. You know, it doesn't seem real sometimes. Um, but for us, it's just it's the way it's always been. You know, it's this kind of uh, blitz scaling approach to uh, securing the market share and kind of putting our stamp on what architecture could be. So give us some numbers for that. So you're, how many staff do you have now? 35. 35. And then what do you, rec- what do you anticipate that will be after crowdfunding? So we're looking to take on another 20 architects over the next 12 months. And each architect needs, on average, about two technicians. And we'll need backroom staff as well. So I think, realistically, from this point, 12 months' time, we could be at 100 staff. Which, you know, you, you, how will your role change with that? Because obviously, more and more you're moving, I would imagine, moving away from the day-to-day architecture, although still keeping an eye on it. How does that feel to move into a kind of different role? I think the quicker I move away from architecture, the better. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm, I always be like, I'm a pretty terrible architect, I think. Um, but yeah, I think there's, um, you need to kind of understand your own skill sets. And I think for me, um, I've very much got a passion for workplace cultures. I understand fundamentally what's wrong with the industry. And uh, I think when you're trying to do something as dynamic and disruptive in a, such a prestigious industry with a very high barrier to entry, you need somebody who's going to be the face and who's going to take the the shots and the bad critics and the, the savage comments when like your press release goes out and um, deal with all the conflict and stress. And I'm very willing to put my hand up and do that. And do you quite enjoy that in a certain way when the old guard of architecture obviously feels a little bit insecure sometimes when you're going out and doing things a bit differently? How do you feel about that? I absolutely love it. It is my absolute number one most favourite thing. And whenever we get these these comments, uh, whether it's on like um, an online magazine or, or a press article or Facebook or whatever, I always make the effort to go and comment and reply. And not in a kind of vindictive way, but just in a way of like standing our ground, defending my family, defending our, our reason to exist. And uh, very rarely do you get a response back because, I mean, these people are commenting anonymously and I'm commenting as Danny Campbell. And um, there's something really empowering about that. And um, I hope that my team see it. I hope that our clients see it. And it's one of these kind of um, solidarities for our our purpose that, you know, I I take very personally. But I don't lose sleep over it either. I think those days have long gone. (laughs) So tell us about crowdfunding. How... What, why did you decide to go? Well, obviously, there's multiple ways you can go about raising investment, and you have raised investment the kind of traditional route as well. Why did you decide to go for crowdfunding? So we're quite fortunate that we've got a really experienced board um, um, of our investors that came in first time around who have been in the game a long time, very successful in their own right. We talked about a number of different ways we could um, raise funds to fuel our growth, and the, the, the funding we're raising is to speed up what we're doing and um, we looked at the market, what the options were, and we felt that crowdfunding was the sweet spot for being a consumer-based company. We want to build a community, a following, advocates, 
Um, and there's obviously a marketing angle to it as well. Um, and uh, it just seemed to be, you know, the the right kind of um, uh, proposition for us. Um, so that's kind of why we chose crowdfunding in the first place. So what what's different to, you know, you've obviously experienced crowdfunding. What did you not expect from it? Um, there was there was lots of things I didn't expect. I, I didn't expect how much time it would take up. Any sort of fundraising takes up a huge amount of your time. And it must be one of the biggest contributing factors to businesses, especially small businesses, going down. Um, because you have key people who are focused away from the day-to-day work. Um, and it's not this golden ticket. I think um, it's kind of put presented to a lot of kind of entrepreneurs and founders of such and such has just made an investment deal of you know x y and z but that comes with tons of baggage and you need to do something with that uh you need to have very valid reasons of what you're going to spend the money on you know um why do you need it in the first place and uh, you also need to actually get it over the line there's so much due diligence there's so many questions to be answered and uh, the difference with crowdfunding as opposed to going for institutional investment is that you're answering these questions from everyone <laughs> you know everyone and it's people who have tons of experience and it's people who have no clue um, I mean I met a guy that I used to play rugby with at CrossFit this morning and he told me that he donated to our crowdfunding and straight away I was like he doesn't understand what it is it's not a donation <laughs> um, but thanks thanks so much I really do appreciate it um, so there's things like that that are kind of odd but um, yeah there's kind of some nice bits to it too So had your board all experienced crowdfunding before? No, they hadn't actually. Um, and I think this is one of the things as well with um, private investment, especially from high net worths. And this is something that they've kind of said to me is that for them, it's not necessarily all about, you know, the end goal of where we get to. I think if you take money from a VC, for example, they are going to hammer you with your projections and your targets and, and the return. And it kind of it, it'll kind of spoil the journey, in my opinion. Um, but when you get these high net worths who believe in, you know, the purpose and they believe in the people, it's really exciting for them. You know, they're, they're, I think they're quite jealous of the journey. You know, they've done it and they have fond memories of it. Um, so I think for them, they saw crowdfunding as a challenge. You know, it's really not an easy way to get your funding over the line. And uh, they thought, you know, if we, can, if we can do this, you know, we put ourselves in a really good position. So um, I think they were quite happy to go down that route purely for a bit of sport. Um, but it has been perfect for us for, for in a number of ways. But um, yeah, they haven't done it before, no. So it's been a learning curve for them. So how was the experience of actually finding that board? Yeah, so um, in fact, it was you I was speaking to a few years ago and you you asked me if I had a business mentor. And uh, I remember I was going through um, Lidl at the time and I was probably in the bakery section and uh, we were chatting Danny, about you've it. you've just lifted the lid that I know the answer to every single question that I've just asked. <laughs> <laughs> but keep going. <laughs> um, and <laughs> Yeah, then um, you asked me if I had a business mentor, and I didn't. And uh, and then I said, do you suggest anybody? And then you suggested Donald, Donald Wilson, Wilson. <laughs> um, who you were working with through Kelmside Academy at the time. So um, I was playing for Donald's charity rugby team at uh, Sevens, and um, I phoned him up and said, hi, Donald, would you like to be my business mentor? And uh, he was like, all right, yeah, sure, that sounds good. And um, we arranged to kind of catch up for a coffee every once in a while and um, and then Donald's one of the you know best connected people in Scotland and he's opened loads of doors and um, I think not being shy to take those opportunities um, has probably been a bit of a is probably an asset to sort of any entrepreneur so um, that was kind of how I got the first you know person who, who was interested and uh, from there just kind of took advice and uh, 
you know, got each and every one over the line. Has there been any times where you've kind of been at loggerheads with them over anything? Um, no, not not really. Um, I think we've we've got a really kind of um, wholesome relationship. Um, certainly at the scale we're at now, that's the case. Um, where I do genuinely feel they want the best for me, mm-hmm. and um, they can see you know how hard I'm trying stuff like that. So and 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 I do take their ad- advising extremely seriously. Um, there was some difficulties closing our investment round. Um, so we were supposed to close it on the 1st of April um, 2020, um, which was obviously just after everything went into lockdown. So An April Fool's Day. An April Fool's Day as well. <laughs> so that was when it was supposed to close and we had everything kind of agreed. And um, we had three um, high net worth investors who were all agreeing to be on our board as well. And we also had... Um, match funding in principle agreed from Scottish Enterprise and um, we went into a lockdown situation and um, those three guys were kind of ready to go and it was actually the Scottish Enterprise piece that really dragged it along and it was a very difficult time because every business was thrown into this like horrendous situation where you know you're staring down the barrel of the gun you know this is your life's work everybody identifies you as being what your brand is and uh, we really had to just batten down the hatches and get through our work. But um, the, the Scottish Enterprise thing, you know, it dragged along complete waste of time and, and fell through at the final hurdle. And uh, it was only through the benefit of having uh, two clients who I had, a, I had a close relationship with that said, you know what, We're, we work in investment as well and we'll back you. And then also one of their um, contacts as well. So we, from the moment Scottish Enterprise kind of uh, disappointingly pulled the plug at the last hurdle, we managed to kind of match ourselves privately. So... Um, that was probably the only stumbling block that was quite difficult. That seems to be like quite a common theme because obviously in working in the job I do, like speaking to a lot of founders and there does seem to be a lot of issues with Scottish Enterprise where there seems to be a lot of work going in but that experience of having the rug pulled away from you seems to be quite common. It's happened to me time and time again. I think... Um, Scottish Enterprise on the face of it seems like this fantastic thing and I do think they've got the right purpose and they're very well positioned to help a lot of people Um, but fundamentally my experience of it has been meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting to dead end and I constantly feel like I'm filling someone's diary and uh, it just it's the most frustrating organisation that I've ever dealt with and I have to deal with planning authorities (laughs) so that says something (laughs) Um, so what? how will the business change post-crowdfunding, do you think? So our, our one of the biggest kind of um, strengths this year has been our focus on our purpose. Um, you know, defining our purpose has let us take on very um, ambitious new parts of the business. You know, Hoko Build, designed to build your own projects. To anybody in construction, that sounds insanity. Um, also Hoko Shop, you know, going into interior design and retail and e-commerce. Again, a far cry from pure architecture. Um, but that's really been our strength, is thinking about what our clients' needs actually are and trying to fulfil, you know, our reason to exist. So purpose has been the marker for 2021 for us. Um, next year, 2022, is going to be a massive year of growth for us. And the only way we're going to do that successfully is really by a focus on our culture and um, I think that word of of culture you know it's a buzzword that kicks around all the time is uh, is really going to define you know where our success comes from Um, so I think over 
the the course of the next 12 months there'll be some probably um reasonably dramatic changes that will really define um where we position ourselves not just as um a, an architectural proposition to the public but also as an employer and also as a kind of route post education especially in architecture um so that's something i'm pretty excited about well wasn't that interesting i can't wait to hear what they say next if you're looking for something for your eyes to do while you're listening to this fascinating interview, why not visit our website at wearestoryshop.com. There you can do it all. Sign up for our newsletters filled with witty commentary, read all the lovely things our clients have to say about us, meet the team, and find our social media channels so you can keep up to date with all the stories we're telling. That's wearestoryshop.com. Now back to the interview. How have you found, find, you've obviously grown substantially, how have you found filling that team? Yeah, you know, there's brilliant people everywhere um, and we, we've had to, um, you know, kiss a few frogs. There's some that haven't worked out, of course, like with, 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 the, with any business, but um, I think the reality is that if you can create an environment where people feel safe, you know, they can actually make mistakes, um, nobody ever raises their voice. That idea of, you know, um, uh, hierarchy and this is my director, I can't speak to him, is the almost, it's, it's the reverse at Hoko. Um, so, what you then find is it's the quiet people who are coming forward with the best ideas. And it's that kind of idea of um, talent density that creates innovation. And people are solving problems, not just because they're tasked to, but because they want to and because they feel committed to why we exist as an organisation. Um, so I think that everybody's looking for a purpose. You know, we, we live in this very disjointed world where, you know, we, we sit behind our phones, we live in our individual houses and we go about our lives quite selfishly. And uh, I think when there's something that people can get aligned with and, and believe in, you know, that's when you get the best out of humanity. And you've made conscious decisions to kind of change your life at the same time to kind of simplify things. Do you want to tell people about that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, I went down the usual... Um, you know, chasing butterflies effect of once your business starts doing well of, of maybe starting to show off a little bit and start um, maybe looking after yourself too much and I realised very quickly that um, that's not a sustainable way to go and it actually is not a fulfilling way to live your life either uh, and I kind of tried to define to myself like where do I actually want this business to get to um, and I don't want it to be this kind of thing that d defines, you know, my life in Glasgow. I want it to be this this global thing that, you know, changes stuff and is a force for good. So, you know, sold my fancy car. Um, I downsized my house. I bought a, a smaller house outright and just did a really nice job of it. Um, I got rid of, like, all my normal clothes, gave them all to charity and just wear, you know, simple black clothes with my own branded stuff on it. And um, Hoko is as much of my life as um, you know living and breathing it's, it's, it's pretty much everything and once that kind of boundary gets blurred you kind of go through this process of it being this burden and then suddenly you kind of break through the other side and the stress and pressure and everything just becomes laughable it's just your existence and uh, it's something that really um, is, is deeply ingrained in me now is, is kind of why I'm here and um, there's there's nothing that I want. There's literally nothing that I want in the entire world other than for my family to be healthy and um, to keep pushing towards our purpose. We've talked quite a bit in the past about how there's kind of two ways to go about it, about like complete separation from work at times, but then there's also this work-life blend. How do you go about that where you have managed to kind of incorporate it within it without, while still 
staying sane. <laughs> yeah, I know we were we were laughing before this started um, because we've been, you know, really good friends for for such a long time, and this is actually the only way we can catch up for now these days. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's it's incredibly important to um, give yourself the opportunity to get a release. So uh, for me, it's through exercise and through you know turning my phone off at least one day a week. So like on a Sunday, I'll spend time with my kids. I'll give my wife a break, who works incredibly hard, um, looking after our three boys. Um, and you need to have a little bit of escapism. Um, um, I think it's it's one of these things where everyone has their own tolerance level, and it also probably changes throughout the year. And so long as you kind of um, keep in touch with how you're feeling and, and, and how your, your mental state is, you can ride the wave quite nicely. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no you know fixed rule. And when it becomes like your whole life, you do get an opportunity to pick and choose. That's a luxury. Nobody's going to ever tell you you're not working hard enough mm-hmm. when it's your existence. So um, you just need to be be real and, and keep checking in with, you know, um, how do you actually feel? When do you really need a break? Mm-hmm. And then you can try and do that guilt-free. I think that the burnout comes from friction. The burnout comes from when you're doing something that you don't believe in. You know, mm. I think like we've talked before about how like building a business is one big game. You know, it's and mm. it's like if you're obsessed with it and you love doing it, then you know obviously there are bad days where it's really really hard. But for the most part, it's you know you get to do this. You choose to do it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's always conflict and stress, and there's like money worries, and there's like legal stuff, and. There's like um, bad employees and there's obviously bad clients and um, there's days when you just get, you know, problem after problem after problem after problem. Um, But I think you build up a a kind of resilience to that over over time. And I think so long as you're building a team where you can be supported by people that that you work with and, and be open with people about how you feel. Um, it really does help kind of get through those bad times. And every single business goes through peaks and troughs. And uh, when you're in a trough, you need to admit to yourself you're in a trough and realise that, you know, fundamentally it's on you to get yourself out of it. I sometimes think like the, when, the bad, when bad things are happening, you can completely control how you react to it. I think the reason people feel burnout or friction is when you have to react to one of these problems with something that doesn't make sense to you. Yeah. And that's how you have to spend your time. And now, you know, if you see a problem, nobody can solve a problem for Hoko like you. And you'll always have the drive to kind of go and just fix it. Yeah, I feel like we live in this kind of like woke society of, you know, social media telling us we're all in this together. You know, when you're running a business, you're not. You are on your own, right? If there's a problem, get in and solve it. You know, action cures stress. If you're feeling overwhelmed, solve a problem at a time. It always makes you feel better. And uh, as soon as you accept that to yourself, that you are fundamentally on your own, but you can do it, you're so empowered and there's nothing that can actually stop you. It's really as simple as that. It's kind of feels like a really scary thing to accept, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Whether you like it or not, it's true. It's very true. So tell me about, so you kind of started touching it there, exercise. We've all been following at Hoko Danny. Um, on, on, is that what, is that the I'm handle? Sure it, yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll Danny Hoko, I don't know. At Danny Hoko. Um, so you, there you're breaking down what you're doing on a day-to-day basis and mm-hmm. from the outside looking in, Pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't see how like tired and scruffy I look at that <laughs> kind of time in the morning, but um, I feel like um, I, I got some really good advice when I was in second year of uni from the head of the year, um, a, a, a really kind of um, tough architect called Joe Crotch, who I was actually really scared of at the time. And she used to run ultramarathons. She was like super fit. And she told us on day one, if there's one thing you do that's just for fun, 
don't sacrifice it for the course. And for me, straight in my head, that was rugby. And I managed to maintain rugby throughout you know, my entire life. And I'm still playing now. And I always make time for it. And uh, it's that kind of 80 minutes in the week where you just can be carefree. You can't get that time back. It's such an absolute privilege to be able to use your body as a young person. Um, and I would hate to kind of look back when I'm old and think, oh, do you know what? I would love to go and run around and throw a ball. And um, especially when stress gets high for me, I find that... Um, doing CrossFit or hot pod yoga or something in the morning really sets my day off right. And I feel good about myself. And it's a pure feel good about myself, guilt-free, put yourself on a pedestal in your head, you know, I've got up early, I've got off to a good start, it's going to be a good day. Mm -hmm. um, so that really does help kind of keep you on track. I think the, the rugby thing is, you know, since I've stopped playing, I think that's one thing I've missed where you literally cannot think about anything else. Yeah. When you're on a bike or even when you're at CrossFit sometimes or exercising, there's other things that can go in your head. You're playing rugby with a combination of the physical stress and, the you know, the physicality of it mm. as well. You can't think about anything. And I think that's so beneficial. And that's probably been a big part of how you've managed to kind of keep going at this pace. Yeah. I used to do this weird thing. I used to get quite nervous before rugby games for, for years and years and years. And um, I used to do this thing where before going out, I would sit there and I would imagine myself as an old version of myself. I've told you this before, haven't I? So I'd be 80 years old, sitting in my comfiest chair. My kids are grown up. You know, I've, businesses have come and gone. Um, everything's comfortable. Everything's settled. It's quiet. Um, I'm listening to some classical music and I've got a really cool like, architecturally designed house. And I'm sitting there and I'm imagining being, you know, 31 years old, about to go and play rugby. And then I imagine like clicking my fingers and then open my eyes and there I am in the changing room about to play rugby with my mates. And you go out there and there's no nerves. You're bounced up and down. You can't wait. You just want the ball. And there's like the times this season where we get to the end of the game and I would happily play for another 80 minutes. It's just such a, a joyous thing to be able to do. And uh, it's nice that you, if you can find something like that, that you understand how privileged you are, um, because people aren't really in tune with their own mortality. Um, but everybody gets old, and um, being able to have a business and try and build a culture and do something fun, you know, it's brilliant. It's, it's such a privilege. It is. Um, so one thing we've been asking people who come on, well, we've not really done any, but um, <laughs> and one thing we're going to ask is uh, tell us about a business, another business that you love, that you admire, that you look to for kind of um, to be inspired. Um, there's so many. I think Glasgow is incredibly um, rich with so many brilliant businesses. Um, is this is this why I mentioned the story shop? No, yes, yeah. no, no. you can uh, sort of shop is off the table. Okay. Um, no, there's there's a there's a company called um, Docs Twenty Four, um, run by Jim Ray. I've been meeting. I met Jim through our chairman, and um, Jim's got a really amazing business. They do um, physical marketing material. They've got this online platform, um, and it's quite. It's a really kind of cool product they've got and, it, and it's um it's beautiful in its simplicity but the thing that really impresses me about uh doc 24 is how jim deals with his team um you know he's he's very kind of um um he's very protective of them he's very focused on culture he, he um you go in there and it's such a serene environment and um he never wants to take credit for anything you know he's very much about you know the team and what he's building and i think that's been a huge part of success and and you really get the strong feeling 
when you go into their office that, you know, like he's the dad of that organisation, you know, carries a lot of respect and um, has done incredibly well whilst also being, you know, a complete gentleman. So um, I think that's a company that, that I really do admire because of the figurehead. Um, and also, you know, they, they've grown uh, very, very fast as well and like overseas and all over the place. So um, that's, yeah, that, that's definitely one for me that, that's pretty cool. And now you've done that close your eyes thing about, 50 years in the future, so do the close your eyes thing for five years in the future. What are you What are you doing then? So five years in the future, that that's actually much more h- harder to envisage than, you know, thir- 50 years. Um, I mean, I would love to see Hoku trading overseas. Um, if I'm completely honest, I could see Hoku being uh, the largest architecture firm in the world. I mean, the current largest architecture firm only has 2,000 architects. Um, and um, I think we could be, you know, delivering our, our, our vision for home um, improvements and extensions to um, a global market. You know, it's an innate human need. Um, we've already proved what we can do in quite adverse circumstances. So um, I would love to see us, you know, in that position. And we spoke earlier about you cutting down things. What have you kept? What are kind of non-negotiables that you've kept that are physical items? Um, so Mocha Master. So um, that's probably the only um, uh, material object that I do kind of cherish. Um, And it's, you know, it's the closest I've ever come to raising my voice in the office is when it gets left on overnight and I come back and it's and it's gone all kind of burnt out. So everybody knows. And it's kind of like, yeah, I know (laughs) there was that whole like um, Spartacus moment where, you know, I was holding it up and. I was like waiting for somebody to volunteer and then another person be like, no, it was me and then it was me, but nah, they all kept quiet. <laughs> um, annoyingly, but um, yeah, that that's like a, a beautiful piece of kit. Um, although, as you know, I um, spontaneously booked my motorbike test last week. So I've got my eye on a, on a motorbike, <laughs> which completely undercuts my entire argument. Um, so t- that's so tell me cool. through uh, how you ended up booking a motorbike test again. Yeah, I was stuck in traffic going through to Edinburgh and a motorbike went past and I said, hey Siri, call Motorbike <laughs> School Glasgow. And it called them and I got through to somebody and I said, can you book me your earliest like motorbike, you know, compulsory basic training? And uh, they booked it in for like a week and then I went and did it last Friday. And I booked in like my my full test for the start of January. And I've started looking at motorbikes. So And as part of your downsizing your life, you'd gone to a smart car, so then you thought this is just too big. Yeah. I can't quite handle this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like a little it's too much baggage. You know, it's too much baggage, like cutting about with a smart car, it's, it's too much, it's not mobile enough. So yeah, I, is there a step down from a motorbike? I don't know if there is <laughs> roller skates. Um so tell us about so we speak a lot about kind of books and getting advice from these business books. What are kind of some recommendations you'd give that have really kind of made an impact? Um, there's a book called Simple, Logical, Repeatable by Miriam Page, um, which talks about McFreedom, um, which is ironic because we were scolded in an Architects Journal article for being the McDonald's of architecture. Um, but, I mean, I think McDonald's is a fantastic organisation. You know, the way they've managed to systemise, you know, spotty teenagers who can't keep their bedroom clean into this well-oiled machine of consistency, you know, wherever you are in the world, is fascinating. So that was one that really helped us develop some of our, our processes. Um, and um, the book I'm reading at the moment is No Rules Rules, about uh, Netflix culture. Um, and that's having quite a profound impact on me as well, of kind of how they do things. 
um, quite extreme cultural views, but ones that I kind of align with as well. So any changes you think from reading that that we'll, we'll see in Hoko? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think, um, that, that, I mean, there's some profound ideas in, in that book about um, talent density and making everybody kind of an A player. Um, and cutting away people who, who aren't committed, but for the ones who are there, giving them unlimited freedom. And that means unlimited expense budget, unlimited holiday, unlimited ability to take on side projects. Um, and I think the more I kind of like develop that mindset of treating people like adults who work for you, um, that's when you get that mutual respect. And in this country, you know, we've got this um, idea towards like corporate life where there's rules you, and you, you abide by the rules, you get to a checkpoint, you move up. I don't think it needs to be like that. It can be a lot more holistic so long as there's a clearly defined purpose and um, some key metrics, you know, rather than, you know, KPIs. And um, I think that's something that really will unlock so much potential in people who want to find their potential. And I hope that they will get a shred of love for their job that, you know, that I have. Um, if people can get that, then, you know, we will be completely unstoppable. And I know a few of them already have it. So I know, I know it's the potential's there. Do you think you'll ever have a business that's not Hoko? Um, I don't know. I, I have kind of always thought about um, uh, what I would ever do after Hoko. And to be honest with you, it kind of fills me with a little bit of dread because um, it's so all-encompassing. Um, I think if if I exited from Hoko, um, I would probably do one of two things. I think either join the SAS and just go into doing some sort of like weird army thing. Uh, that's always kind of appealed to me. Um, I think any sort of like high scale entrepreneurship is an adrenaline sport. Um, I think that would be pretty exciting. I think either that or buying an island and, and creating some sort of an ashram or a, a way where people can live different rules that, you know, um, are kind of like custom to the people who want to live there. Um, not a cult. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, a like a cult. <laughs> it's not a cult. Tell me like, the things that are happening in this island. Well, I think that if you do take a step back and think about like the rules of society, there's a lot of them that are like, they, they kind of don't really make a lot of sense. They're kind of being put in place to keep people under control. You know, we live in this like instant gratification consumer society um, where we're constantly like feeding this massive machine. Every single thing that you deal with in your day-to-day -day life is some sort of business. Um, and I think that, I mean, the benefit is that my, my wife did evolutionary psychology as, as her PhD. So um, we talk quite a lot about where we came from. You know, we came from this like village culture, these like very close-knit communities of people that weren't closed off from each other. And now we're stuck behind phones. We're in these individual little boxes of houses. You know, we sit behind our desk every day and it's harder and harder to kind of build these like community-like environments. Um, but I do think fundamentally that is where we find meaning as a species. Um, because we need to, you know, check ourselves. We're actually primates, you know. Um, this is kind of what we need, you know, inherently. And that's probably why we've got so many issues now with, like, anxiety and loneliness and mental health stuff. It's because we're living in quite a clinical environment. So, yeah, it would probably have, like, tire swings and, um, <laughs> like, mud pits and stuff. No, but it would just be a way for people to kind of live differently. That community is so important because you think about, like, I don't really phone people, but one of the people I speak to most regularly is you because you fo like actively phone, and I'm always pleased when you phone, but I then always think I, w I wouldn't want to phone someone else because they might not want to speak to me or they'll be busy mm. and you kind of check yourself. But you think about, like, especially when we first became friends, you know, you had less priorities in life, you were able to just spend a lot more time together, and as that goes on, and when you've got, you've obviously got your business, your family and things like that, 
very hard to keep all the the stoves on, you know, and keep them going. So I think like that kind of village thing is so true, and it's uh, it is a big kind of loss. With yeah, things. and I think when you have people who are trying to help each other win, it becomes this really beautiful thing where you know everybody wins. You know, there's this kind of idea of you know you need to you know um, do what it takes to get to the top, and you're going to make enemies along the way and all that sort of thing. But I don't think that actually is the case. Um, I mean, the Dogs 24 guy is a perfect example of that. You know, if you're nice to people and you support them and you help them win, they'll help you win. And if you do that with enough people, you're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it comes back to that idea that I was saying about with Hoko, where you're treating people like, like adults. You know, they're turning up, they've got responsibility. Um, and if they treat that um, responsibility with respect and actually um, do their best work, then they're going to find fulfillment. And there's that kind of level of trust that goes way beyond being uh, colleagues. It becomes something so much more profound um and i think people find that incredibly enriching and comforting because the moment you have a problem you've got a support network um so yeah i think building um yeah not a cult but getting an island and doing some like cool little huts would be pretty class look forward to visiting right i think this is going to go out before your crowdfunding's up so do you want to just tell people why and where? Yep, so um, you can buy equity in Hoko, uh, get a slice of the pie, um, and be a part of our journey as we continue to, to scale. It's on Crowdcube, so if you go into Crowdcube and search for Hoko, or even just search you know, Hoko crowdfunding on Google, you're sure to find it, um, if our PR marketing guys have done the job right. So um, that's all you need to do. And you, uh, you can read more. And yeah, you just click, you click, um, yeah, uh, invest. Invest, invest is, is okay. the terminology, yeah. That's clarifying. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for being on the Story Shop podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. If you know a purpose-driven entrepreneur with a story worth telling who would make for a great guest on the Story Shop podcast, send us a message on social media. We're at We Are Story Shop on all channels. <laughs>